what is the essence of Christianity? What does it mean to be a Christian? I think these questions are asked and there are just about as many different varying answers to those questions as there are people who ask them. So what does it mean to be a Christian? This question is raised and highlighted all the more as different pollsters do surveys and show that evangelical Christians think this or that way about a particular thing. So to be a Christian means blank. As we talk with neighbors and friends, some might believe that to be a Christian means simply that you vote a particular way, or perhaps that you believe these particular sets of things that you call truth, or perhaps that you just live in a certain way and it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you live a quote-unquote moral life. So what does it mean for us to be Christians? Well, very often the the answer to that question tends to be answered in one of two ways. On the one hand, individuals tend to answer, to be a Christian means that you affirm certain truths that are revealed in the Bible. In Christianity, tends to be highlighted in doctrinal terms. We have this set of beliefs, and if you're going to be a Christian, simply confess those beliefs, and you're a Christian, and that's all that matters. And the abuses of this way of thinking show up in terms of Christians who will confess the faith and and depart from Christ in every other way, or perhaps who just repeat the same words time and time again without ever understanding them. But on the other side of the spectrum are individuals who would say to be a Christian means that you do this list of things. There are these moral requirements that are placed upon you, and for you to be a genuine Christian, you do those things, and then you become a Christian. So on the spectrum, we sometimes talk about legalism on the one hand, you just do certain things, and libertarianism on the other hand. It it doesn't matter what you do as long as you just believe certain realities. So when we turn to Ephesians chapter 4, we enter into a, a tough text because Paul begins to give exhortations to moral living, and these exhortations have been talked about by people on either side of that spectrum. On the one hand, saying all you need is the doctrine in Ephesians with none of the commands for moral living. And on the other side of the spectrum, there's a railing about living in a particular way that's divorced from the saving work of grace that's found in Jesus Christ alone. So very often individuals will talk about Ephesians as being split into two parts. They'll talk about the indicative part in chapters 1 through 3, which is to say these are truths about Christ and your salvation. And then in Ephesians 4 through 6, they'll say there's the imperative part. So these are the things that you ought to do. And individuals who comment about Ephesians in this way rightly say the imperatives have no foundation apart from the indicatives. So Paul's commands for you to live in a particular way cannot be divorced from the truth that your salvation and favor in God is secured by Christ alone. And I think that's right as far as it goes, but I'm not certain that I agree that we can divide Ephesians neatly between a set of indicatives followed by a set of imperatives. I think we need to look at the entire book a little bit differently. 
And so up on the screen for you is, I think, a better way of understanding what Paul is doing in the book of Ephesians. I don't think he's writing a list of doctrines followed by a list of commands. Instead, I think Paul is following the flow of the Old Testament, particularly the Pentateuch and especially Exodus, to demonstrate that God has redeemed people in the past and he's redeeming people once again and he's forming us into one community, the covenant community of God himself. So if you see in the left-hand column, there's a progression in Exodus really throughout the Pentateuch that begins with redemption from Egypt. God has identified a people for his name and he's redeemed them from bondage. And in so doing, he's created them or set them up as the new humanity. So this language is given as Israel is set apart from all of the other nations. It's as if all of the other nations are identified in Adam who sinned against their covenantal Lord. And God is making a new Adam in the nation of Israel, a new humanity. It's this new nation that's identified in Exodus as God's firstborn son. In this Son, this new nation, this new humanity is blessed with God's relational presence that is established first in the tabernacle that would travel with them and then ultimately in the temple where God would dwell with his people. That dwelling presence would be mediated at times through Moses or, or through the priest, but God would dwell with his people in the tabernacle and then the temple. And as these things are established, God speaks to his people and provides a law code. We think of this sometimes in terms of the Ten Commandments and then the really tough to read through books in the Pentateuch like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And sometimes we don't know what to do with that. Well, very simply, you need to understand that as, as the legislation or the constitution for the old covenant people of God, this nation that's chartered by the old covenant law. And then as this law is given, God commissions his people for warfare and conquest. They're not to stay in the wilderness. They're to enter into the promised land. They're to exercise warfare and battle as they operate on God's behalf as his vice regents and as they establish God's presence in the promised land. So this is the flow of the Pentateuch. This is the flow of the Old Testament. And we need to track with this. We need to know our Old Testament. So if you wonder why we do a reading from the Old Testament every Sunday, in part, this is why. Because we need to inhabit the story of God's redemptive work throughout time. And what that does is we attend to the movements of God's redemptive work in history. We start to see it recapitulated or we start to see it show up again in the New Testament. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. So I think that Paul has read the Old Testament carefully. We know this already. He alludes to the Old Testament over and over again, but he does so not just with direct quotations, as we'll observe again today, but also by understanding the movement of God in history to redeem his people. So Paul reads the Old Testament. He's acquainted with the Old Testament. And I think as he's structuring his letter to the Ephesians, he's trying to show that what God did there, he's doing in a more effective way here. So what God did through Moses in, in Exodus, he's now doing through Jesus, the better Moses, his son. And, and we need to attend to this for a variety of reasons, but note that same progression. 
Paul begins with a notation about our redemption from sin that mirrors the language of Israel's redemption from Egypt. And then he identifies Jew and Gentile who come together to form one new humanity. They're the one new nation. They belong to the household of God. And this is why later on in Ephesians, when Paul talks about the Gentiles, he's using this as shorthand for people who are still like Adam. So just like when Israel was drawn out from Egypt, Egypt is now like sinful Adam who breaks the covenant with God. Now in a shorthand sort of way, when he'll say, don't live like the Gentiles, he's, he's not being a racist or something like that. He's saying, don't live like the old humanity apart from God, because God's made a new humanity. And then in in the end of chapter 2, he says that this new humanity is not given a temple, but becomes a temple. So what God did in the old covenant is now heightened and done in a better way. And God will dwell with you, the temple, by his Holy Spirit. The progression then mirrors once again what we see in the Pentateuch to the giving of a law code or legislation for the new covenant community. That's what we're going to enter into today and for the next couple of weeks. And then following that law code or that the commands of Christ, this new covenant community legislation, Paul calls them to arms, to spiritual warfare. He says to take up the armor of God and to fight the spiritual battle. And there's a conquest of sorts that ends the book of Ephesians. Now, you might be wondering, does this matter? Those are perhaps nice observations. You know, it's sort of like reading your favorite fantasy novels and you you read another book by the same guy and you see sort of the same storyline happen. Or you sit in literature class and you're introduced to the hero's journey and you can realize just about every story follows the same pattern along the way. That's neat, but does it really matter? Well, I I think it does matter. One reason is simply because we're once again encouraged to read our Old Testaments and see that there's a continuity between what God has done and what God is continuing to do. And just as God has been faithful to accomplish that work in the past, so too will he be faithful to accomplish it in the present. But beyond that, I think by attending to these similarities or this pattern that Paul is laying out, we're going to be able to better interpret and understand and respond to the ethical imperatives that we'll observe this week and next week. Many of us have heard sermons from these texts of Scripture that amount to nothing more than a list of things to do so that way God will be happy with you or something like that. And many of us have read the Old Testament law and misunderstood any Um, individual in the Gospels who wanted to obey that law as being a legalist or something like that. But by attending to this pattern, we start to see that these commands are not just an isolated incident, and, and we either get to attend to them or not, but we understand that they're part of the larger redemptive work of God, and they're situated in the right place. These commands do not give us the power to become a Christian, but they are fitting for our lives as Christians. So what I'm trying to say is that as we look at these exhortations, it's not as if you, if, if you follow these close enough, you now can reshape your identity and, and now you're going to look like Christ. Rather, the opposite is true. You've been given a new identity in Christ, and therefore you begin to resemble and reflect Christ in all that you do. 
Furthermore, we start to recognize that these commands are, are both weighty and light. So what I mean by that is when we read these commands, they are intensifications of the Old Testament law in many respects. So it's as if the grace made present in Christ comes and it strengthens the weight and the burden of the law. So instead of just being told, uh, don't steal, like the Ten Commandments say, we're told don't steal, but go beyond that and work hard so that you can give to others. And this is very much like Jesus' teaching in the gospel, where grace intensifies the law. And if we stopped there, there would be very little hope for us. But as we attend to this flow of redemption to future consummation, we start to understand that Jesus himself became the law. And because we are now identified as his body, we too enter into becoming of a sort a law that is written on our heart. And so we don't look at these things as a list of requirements that we must do to become a true Christian, but actually it's just the statement of our identity as it's worked out in our daily lives. Finally, I think that it's helpful to attend to this structure, not just because it, it makes for a cool observation, but because it reminds us that this is a, a true story that we're part of, and we have to put our life into that story. So one of our temptations when reading a list of commands is to grab onto the commands that we want and fit them like a nugget into the spaces of our lives where it works really well for us. But, but we should understand, as we read the Old Testament, that did not work for Israel, did it? They couldn't just pick the parts that they wanted and fit it into their lives. Instead, they were called to enter into God's redemptive story as a holistic, transformative event. So when we read these commands, I don't want us to try to make a list of things we should do or should not do, but instead we should understand that this is a pattern of life in an orientation or direction that we enter into as we follow Christ. But perhaps more than that, we come to understand that this story isn't just about us. So it's not as if these commands can be applied in isolation by myself with just me and Jesus any more than the Old Testament Israel could obey the law without their relationship to the rest of the covenant community. So when we read these commands, I want you to notice that you cannot obey these if you are not connected to Christ's people. You cannot obey these commands to love one another or forgive one another or speak the truth to one another if you are not connected to Christ's people. This, these commands, I think, should have implication for our, our dealings with unbelievers as well, certainly. But Paul is trying to say, you are now Christ, part of Christ's body, and here is how Christ's body ought to relate to one another. We learn then, as we'll come to see, that the body of Christ is not perfect yet. So these commands are necessary, not because we're perfect, but because we're being made new in Jesus Christ. So having said all that, I hope it gives us a framework to hear these things rightly. And as we trace through verses 17 through verse 32 of chapter 4, Paul is going to follow a similar movement once again. He's going to talk about who you were, then who you are, and then how we ought to live as this new humanity in Christ. 
And, and once again, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that this is the way that God spoke when he gave the law to, to Israel. So if you think back to Exodus 20, how do the Ten Commandments begin? Begins something like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That law was based on the gracious action of God, and all of the, the commands we're about to observe are based on the gracious action of God in Christ. And Paul wants to punctuate that by highlighting who we were outside of Christ and who we are now. So who we were outside of Christ, Paul articulates in verses 17 through 19. He says, therefore, so again, rooting this in all that's come before, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their heart. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. This, this is a grim picture. And, and Paul is not being mean to, to anyone here by saying that they were ignorant or something like that. Paul is articulating what humans are naturally like without Christ. We learn of this from the very first pages in the Bible, don't we? Adam and Eve are in the garden. The tempter approaches them and offers them knowledge by breaking their covenantal relationship with God. They eat of the fruit and, and they violate that covenantal relationship. And instead of finding knowledge, they find ignorance. Instead of finding life, they're excluded from the life of God as they're removed from the garden. And instead of becoming better or more sophisticated or more godlike, they become less godlike as they pursue evil desires. And every generation, it gets worse and worse and worse. And as we've read those texts, what happens is that generation after generation, person after person, they committed a life of wickedness and then they died. That's, that's what Paul is talking about. That's who each of us are without Christ. And there's no hope in any human to fix that. That's why we read the Old Testament and we see over and over again that there is no solution for that problem. There's no life. There's only captivity and darkness. How does our world look at this? Well, this week, I saw two examples of individuals who, who want to push against this, and all that it does is confirm that their sin. In one, there's this thing called TikTok, apparently, and there's this individual that, that is trying to offer freedom and religion in, in a way, and the, the video started with the question, who saved you? And in, in, in the video, the lady just pointed at herself and said, I did. And, and I think that that's what the world offers. We, we all recognize, every person recognizes that this world is a broken place. We see this on large-scale national events, worldwide events, and we see it in, in our own homes, that there's a brokenness there. And I think there's an impulse in all of us to try to find a savior. And if we answer the question, who saved me from all of this brokenness with myself, we're just blinded and walking forward in the futility of our minds. 
in the second example, there's an individual offering freedom to people who have been enslaved by Christianity. And certainly there are forms of Christianity that are not true Christianity, that only harden those against Christ and do bring a form of captivity. But there is no freedom from these things outside of Christ. And any offering of insight or truth or life hack that tries to do that is misguided and will only lead for only lead to destruction. So what do we do with this? Well, on the one hand, we need to be aware that we can be tempted, even if we have come to know Christ, to look for solutions other places. We heard of this in Bible class this morning. We sang of it, of Peter who could say, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Where else can we go? And, and what does Peter do along with all the other disciples? He goes elsewhere. I, I think that when Paul is recording these things, he is reminding us that we, we need Christ and Christ alone. Paul does this in other places as well. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 10, he goes to this extended example of Israel who all knew the truth, who were baptized into Moses, who ate of the manna, but then, but then they left the Lord their God. And he says that these things are written for our instruction. This paragraph about who we were apart from Christ is written for our instruction to remind us that we don't graduate out of Christ's saving work, but that we need it every day of our lives then we also need this text because it's the message that we proclaim. It's, it's the filter through which we see the world. So as we talk to our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family who don't know the Lord, this is what we say about humanity. It's, it's broken. So we call on them to know Christ. He's the only solution. We must repent and believe and follow after him. So that's what we say over and over again. And that's what Paul says as he moves in to describe who you are now in verses 20 to 24. It says, that old way of living is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. So who are you now? You're a new person made and created in Jesus Christ. Now, depending on the translations that you read, it might sound like Paul is saying, the way that you become a Christian is to take off your former way of life, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and then to put on the new self, as if those are actions that you take, that you accomplish, and that you do. Our translation is somewhat vague. Some are more clear that those are commands, and others are more clear that this is work that Christ has already done. And as we attend to the larger message of Ephesians, I think we're to understand that this is work that God has already done in Jesus Christ. Because there's a reality that we can't take off our former way of life, but that it has to be stripped off us by the grace of Jesus Christ. So we see this articulated in, in Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, where you have this boy, Eustace, who's now a dragon, 
And in the only way he cannot be a dragon anymore is if the claws of Aslan come and rip it off. Well, I think that's what Paul is trying to say here, is that the old man is what our default is and we will continue in it. But the way that we know Christ is by Christ revealing himself to us and, and through the truth that Jesus removes us from us by his grace. So he removes that old self that's corrupted by deceitful desires and we're to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. This again is a renewal that we cannot do. Paul has already articulated this, that we are renewed by the Holy Spirit who gives life to dead bones. It says we put on the new self. And again, this is the new self that's created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. We cannot do this. This is something that we receive. I think there's a clarifying note that we need here. When Paul speaks of putting on the new self, some of your translations will say to put on the new man. And, and I think that's more helpful because earlier in chapter 2, Paul has talked about the fact that God has taken Gentile and Jew and in Christ created one new man. And so when Paul here says that we need to have the new man put on, he's not saying something like, um, ignore the old Aaron and put on the new Aaron, or ignore, ignore the old you and put on the new and better you. Instead, he's calling us to identify as the very body of Christ, the new humanity that's been created by Christ Jesus. That's who you are, and that's who you must identify as. So where the first Adam in the garden was created in the image and likeness of God, and there was some degree of forfeiting the reflection of God in the mediating presence of his righteousness and purity and truth, in the body of Christ, the church, in the new humanity, there's a renewal of God's image and likeness, whereby the church now radiates God's presence and glory for all to see, in righteousness and in the purity of the truth. This is freeing because instead of reading this text and saying, I just need to work hard to be the best me that I can be, we instead say, I attach myself to the body of Christ, the community of faith, because we've already learned in verse 16 that from Christ, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, provides the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. So my pursuit of holiness and sanctification is not me working to be the best me, but me instead connecting to the body of Christ and working out God's plan for the church as we connect to Christ, our head. So this reframes the way that we hear all of the exhortations that come in verses 25 through 32. It's not me just being my best self. Instead, it's me entering into the community of faith and experientially living out the Christ who has reformed and reshaped each of us into the identity of God's image and likeness. So I think this will become more clear as we progress. Paul moves in verses 25 through 32 to give instructions or the commands of Christ for living as the new humanity. And what you'll notice is that every single one of these commands relate to the formation of the community of faith. So are there other things that Christians should do? 
Yes, and, and they're articulated throughout the Bible. But Paul is highlighting these things because it's these things that will either cultivate the life of the community and build up the body, or the failure to do them will destroy the life of the community. So as we hear these things, we need to hear them in that context. So he says in verse 25, Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor. Why? Because we are members of one another. So Paul has already instructed us to speak the truth in love, and he circles again here. The foundation of our community life together is putting away lying and speaking the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Now certainly I think this includes not fibbing or or telling any sort of lie or anything contrary to the truth, but more fundamentally, as we've seen in this progression, where Paul has talked about the Christ who redeems, therefore speak truth in love, and then he talks about the way we came to know Christ and that we're being created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. When he says, put away lying and speak the truth in love, I think he's talking about our doctrinal commitments to abide in Christ and Christ alone. I think he's saying that the only way for this new humanity to exist is to connect to Christ who is the truth, who leads us in the way which leads to life. So when he talks about putting away lying, I have a hunch that as he's speaking to the Ephesians, he's perhaps especially identifying those um, who were of Jewish commitment, practicing Judaism prior to coming to faith in Christ. And I think he's saying something like, you need to look at this new humanity, this new body, and add no requirement to these individuals to become one of God's people than to come to Christ and Christ alone. Because it's not your Jewish identity that makes you according to God's likeness, but your connection to Jesus Christ. So, so when he's talking to this early church community, I think he's adjudicating between Jews and Gentiles, like we see in the book of Acts at the Jerusalem Council and other places. So what do we do with that? Certainly don't lie about anything, but more importantly, I think that we need to be moved to speak the truth that to entrance into this community is possible only by Christ alone. And so we add nothing other than our identification with Jesus is the requirement for someone to be part of this community and ultimately of the larger body of Christ. Ways that we can fail to do this are by making a list of requirements that people must fulfill, by listing a particular way of thinking about life in the world as the measure of whether someone is a true Christian or not in in a variety of other ways. At the risk of being too pointed, I, I think that one of the ways that this is present on a weekly basis in, in the church in our neck of the woods are the questions about how we respond to political events and in medical crises, particularly masks and vaccines. We regularly are asked as pastors what our church's position on, on a vaccine is, and, and we're happy to tell them we don't have one, and there's no, there's no requirement to get one or not get one that allows you to enter into the body of Christ. As we look at things like that, I think that's just a microcosm of everything else that we add to those lists. 
certainly those things have been testing points for the church and for churches in our area. And as we press forward in the events of our world, I don't think we'll get away from these things as being pointers of whether or not you're truly a Christian, whether you go one way or the other. And sadly, there are churches on both sides that would sort of require both for you to be really, truly like Jesus. So as we think of what it means to speak truth to each one of his neighbor about what it means to enter and to abide in the life of the community in the body of Christ, we need to be careful to rise above the rackets of the passing identity markers that that we hear about and that come through our culture and through our news feed. So I would encourage you and exhort you to resist that. But not just that. Don't limit your thinking to this one example, okay? identify the other ways that a local church can can add to Christ as the requirements for individuals to come to that body. As we, Lord willing, will transition to our new property in November, and as we seek to use that as a base for ministry, even as Steve prayed, that's not the end goal. The end goal is to minister to others. We need to be a kind of church that welcomes many into the body of Christ by virtue of their connection to Christ and nothing else. There will be people who look very different than you who will want to to come to Christ and you should welcome them. And, And they'll want to be part of our church and you should welcome them. There are people who will have different standards about just life practices or ways of thinking. And we need to look at people who are different than us or think different than us or have different personalities than us and and understand that their connection to us covenantally comes by virtue of their connection to Christ and nothing else. So when you're inclined to require something of others that Christ does not, just let it go. It's hard because I'm always right. You're always right. We feel that way. But we understand that life is in Christ alone, and that's the truth that we must speak to one another. Why? Because we're members of one another by virtue of our connection to Christ. He goes on, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and don't give the devil an opportunity. Sometimes we read this as justification for every bout of angerness that we have. Anytime we get angry, we say, well, to the best of my knowledge, I didn't sin. And look, Paul tells me to be angry. So, so I'm right here. Well, the problem is, in verse 31, he says, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath be put o- away from you. So how do we read this verse? Well, if your Bible is like mine, it's bolded, indicating that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, and he's quoting from Psalm chapter 4. And I think it's by attending to what's going on in Psalm 4 that we can understand what Paul is trying to do here. So turn to Psalm 4. Let's briefly consider this. The quote comes from verse 4 of Psalm chapter 4. But it begins earlier when the psalmist writes, How long, exalted ones, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him, be angry and do not sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. Offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? The answer, let the light of your face shine on us, 
Lord. I think what Paul is indicating that there are certainly moments where anger is the appropriate and godly response to something. Primarily the wickedness in this world in the rejection of God and his people. So he points out that this is the experience common to God's people throughout history. And so what do we do? We do the same thing that they did then. Just like this psalmist, we cry out, perhaps in anger, but instead of remaining in that sphere of anger, we give it over to the Lord. We, we lie down and rest in peace. And, and when our anger causes us to ask, where can we find good in this life, in this world? We rest in God and we say, let the light of your face shine upon us. So where Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, I think he's just recalling the picture from Psalm 4 of the individual who goes to bed and rests in peace and not in anger. And by doing so, that individual can give opportunity for God to shine his face on the situation. And so in that way, we don't give the devil an opportunity. We don't give the devil an opportunity to let anger fester in our hearts and in our lives. I will confess that probably like most of you, perhaps worse than most of you, I can let anger reside in my heart for a long time. Even this week as I was studying this passage, I was convicted about the fact that I can become angry even over something that I perhaps am rightly unhappy about and let it reside in my heart. And instead of allowing that to become an opportunity where God can make his face known and shine the light of his presence on my life, instead the devil is given an opportunity. And instead of mirroring God's likeness, I begin to mirror the devil's likeness. I think that this is something that many of us are tempted to and in our world encourages. Our world encourages the slow and steady burn of anger and wrath and in all the while convince us that we are righteous in the feeling and action of anger. But in the life of the community, that kind of festering kills the community. It's antithetical to the kind of anger that God displays, and more importantly, it's antithetical to the reality that Jesus Christ absorbed all of the anger that sin deserves as he bore wrath and sin on the cross. So we rightly become angry about certain things, but then we must more righteously give ourselves in the situation over to the Lord and not give an opportunity to the devil. How does the church do this? Well, throughout history, different individuals have wrestled with how this command relates to the life of the community. Some have suggested that it relates to church discipline, where Paul says, be angry about sin, exercise discipline, and, and then let the Lord act, or something like that. Perhaps that's what it is. But I think wherever we find anger in our hearts, we need to respond in this way, by giving it to the Lord. He goes on then. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. I don't think that Paul's addressing a problem of rampant thieving in the assembly at, at Ephesus. I think instead that he's using bold and stark language to call out what we might soften in terms of mooching off of one another or something like that or just being a consumer. 
relating to the life of the community in a way that takes only, whether that's in terms of physical possessions or, or, or feeding off of the kindness and hospitality of others, whatever the case might be, Paul says, don't be that kind of person. Don't be the kind of person who destroys a community by burning through its resources and taking what you don't need. Instead, you're to do honest work with your own hands so that you have something to share with anyone in need. Here, I think, is where grace intensifies the law and intensifies the obligations of the community for one another. Instead of being those who consume, we become those who work hard so that we're ready to provide for others who are genuinely in need. So as a church, we need to think about this. As you look at yourselves as individuals and others around you, don't be a a consumer of all things. Instead, strategically orient your life in a way that you're going to be able to provide for others. So the life of the community is strengthened as they share together. He goes on, verse 29, No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. No foul language. Well, what is that? Well, this is, this is a complicated question, believe it or not. You might, you know, look at a movie rating and you see a little line of foul language or something on there that makes it now PG-13 instead of, you know, PG or something like that. And when you hear that, you might think of a list of words that you would identify as foul language and understand Paul simply to be saying, don't say a certain set of words. On, on one level, that, that may be headed in the right direction, but I don't think Paul has a list of words in his mind that he's saying should not proceed out of somebody's mouth. Instead, when he talks about foul communication or foul language, he's, he's using a, a word figuratively, this word translated here, foul, that only shows up in other places literally in terms of rotten fruit or rotten fish. That, that's where this shows up. And I think one of the ways that Christians can tend to avoid actually obeying this command is by making a list of arbitrary words that change in their denotation and connotation. In our day, like every five years, words change their meaning. And they make a list of words they're not going to say and believe that they're obeying these commands. When instead, Paul is saying, let no rotten or corrupting or, or um, fouling up communication come out of your mouth. So the picture is, like if you have that, that bag of apples and there's one apple that's rotten and it's touching the others, it just seems like all the other apples become rotten. He's saying, don't talk to one another in a way that, that brings rottenness and disease into the community. Instead, Because if you do that, it it tears down the community. It weakens its foundations. Instead, use your speech and your communication for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. So the way that we talk to one another ought to be governed by, by this reality. When I talk to someone, am I going to use my words in a way that will strengthen them, and provide the grace that we all need. Sometimes this is going to involve hard things, hard things. 
read Paul's own letters if you want to start to figure out what's excluded or from foul communication and what's fair game. Read some of the things Paul says. He can speak very bluntly and, and far more bluntly and clearly than most of us are comfortable talking. But as he said already, we temper all our speech with love. We speak the truth in love. So we need God's wisdom, don't we, to know how to talk to one another. So we ought to seek to be guided by him in, in such that our words do not tear down the body, but instead build it up. He moves on to verse 30, and don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? If you find out, let me know, and just about everyone else who studied the Bible, because this is something of a mystery. What does it mean exactly to grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, I want to make a suggestion here, and I just have to say this is one of those times when, when we have to admit that we don't know if this is fully correct or not, or if it's grasping everything that's there. So take it for what it's worth, but I'll try to demonstrate that I think there's something to it. I believe that Paul is referencing here Isaiah 63, and in that context, Isaiah is speaking really to Israel and reminding them of the past history of Israel. In an Isaiah 63, verse 7, he, he starts to recall that God delivered Israel out of Egypt. He, he removed them from their bondage and captivity. Uh, but in the wilderness, what did Israel do? Israel started to grumble and complain and devalue the redemptive work of God. So when Paul here starts to talk about not grieving the Holy Spirit, even though we have a verse marker that disconnects it from the foul language in the previous verse or the rotting language, I think what he's trying to do is to bring these two ideas together and then give us an illustration of what this foul language looks like. And it looks like Israel wandering in the wilderness, grumbling and complaining about the provision and work of God. Because the way that that's encapsulated in Isaiah is that Israel grieved God's Holy Spirit. So if you're wondering, have I ever grieved the Holy Spirit? I think the answer probably is all of us do when instead of welcoming God's redemptive, transformative work and looking forward to that great and final day when it comes to completion, we complain and we speak with words that are not of faith, but, but are instead of unbelief. When we grumble when we complain and instead of calling our attention to God's providing redemptive work we we distract others from it this can happen in very clear and stark ways where there are those who leave the faith and call individuals away from the faith or it can happen in more subtle ways as we relate in our community together, complaining about one another and all of their faults and foibles, instead of realizing that the Holy Spirit has sealed that person until the day of redemption when they'll be perfect forevermore. We can grieve the Holy Spirit when we start to complain that, that God is not enough for us in this time, in this place, not recognizing the larger redemptive work where we will abide in God's presence forevermore, and indeed, we're given God's presence by his Spirit now. 
when we become more like Israel than like Jesus, that's when we grieve the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what Paul goes on to describe in verse 31, beginning with secret, hidden, inner expressions of this sin and grieving of the, spirit, of the Spirit and expanding outward. Let all bitterness, he says, and anger and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. That's Israel. It's it, their worst spot anytime you read the Old Testament. And Paul says, let that be removed from you by God's Spirit, and to be replaced with kindness. So be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. So he climaxes these laws for the covenant community by pointing out that every single person in that community will fail and will sin against you. So therefore, just as God forgave you in Christ, you too ought to forgive one another instead of holding on to things in bitterness, in anger, and wrath, in shouting, and slander. So how do we respond to these things? How do we respond to this text? Well, some of us maybe need to respond by uh, posting that a picture of verse 31 as the background to our phones as we communicate with people. We remember that all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander should be removed. But more importantly, as we come together and think about our relationships with one another, we should understand that this list of rules is not the kind of rules that are heavy and burdensome. And the reason they're not is because of the justification in the final line of verse 32, because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So we recall Jesus is teaching that his his commands are not heavy or burdensome, but they're light. How can that be the case? It's because Jesus has accomplished all of this for us already on our behalf. And so it's not as if we need to conjure up perfection in ourselves, but instead we connect to Christ. And when we fail, when we fail to forgive and love and operate in the new covenant community as Christ has commanded, when we look at ourselves and see our failures, we follow the advice of that preacher John Stott, who said, for every one look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. So as we end our considerations of this portion of Paul's instruction for the community of faith, just want to encourage you, don't look at yourself. Don't, don't look at yourself, either in finding pride where you have carried these things out rightly, or, or finding sorrow and depression where you see your failure Instead, look to Christ and run to him. Let's pray that God would do this in our assembly, that he would transform us into the image of Christ and govern our life together.